into the new year. Well, uh, this is actually our last Sunday gathering of 2019, and it's, uh, it's hard to believe that another year has, has come and gone, uh, that another Christmas has come and been celebrated and is now in the past, or though if you're like me and you still have one more Christmas celebration to sneak in here uh, either tonight or, or the, this week, uh, there's still a few more things going on. But for the most part, those celebrations are, are all in the past. Some of you parents are like, I finally get to yank the batteries out of the toys that some of my kids got and, and let that move on. Uh, but in just a few short days, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll be switching our attention to focusing in and, and ringing in the new year. And uh, many people, myself included, use this time of year to reflect a little bit on the last 12 months and, and how we've grown and the people that we've become and set goals or create resolutions for the year ahead. And you might ask yourself questions like, what sort of person do you want to be in, in 2020? What sort of challenges are you ready to face and changes are, are you ready to make to your life that, that will impact the way that you grow from, from January to February and February to March and, and so on? We often ask ourselves the sort of question, the, these questions and related to our physical or, or our material circumstances. How can I improve my health or my image? What goal could I set to advance my education or my job? Or what are the things that are around me that I could change and, and if I managed to make those changes would improve my overall happiness or well-being? And while resolutions like this can certainly be, be very healthy and, and very good things to pursue and to commit to, this morning I want, to, want us to be sure that we also consider what plans are we making for our spiritual well-being in the new year. How do you hope to grow as a follower of Jesus Christ in 2020? Or perhaps you're with us this morning and, and you're not a father of Jesus. You, you've been learning about him. You, you've, you're curious. You, you want to know more about him. What steps could you take to learn more about, about the gospel and learn more about truth and, and learn more about the things that we teach and the things we find in the Bible? How can, you, how can we all learn more about God's love for us as we move forward into the next year? Now, as I thought about these questions myself, my heart actually became a little bit heavy thinking about the challenges that being a follower of Christ comes with in the context of our everyday lives. There's an awful lot of pressure to, to think in certain ways and to act in certain ways, to eat at certain places, to not eat at certain places, purchase things from this store but not purchase them from that store, vote for this person but don't support this person. And all, of this, all these things start adding up on each other and there seems more and more and more that gets added every day to what it means to be a Christian. On top of all this, there seems to be this growing cultural conflict or discomfort with certain practices and beliefs of our faith. It seems like every day there's some new accusation of, of Christians being narrow-minded or intolerant or, or something worse. And it breaks my heart to think that, that a way of life founded on these two great principles of love God and love others is somehow being become, becoming known to, to, for, for things that are much less than those two prized ideals. That it doesn't matter, people feel like it doesn't matter that we, that we preach those things and they miss out on this gospel that we have to share and this love that we have to show. With all this in mind, what I'd like to do this morning is, is reset our feet on the solid ground of that gospel and make it clear why we really, what we really need to know and remember and cherish in our hearts this, this, this one core fact for the new year, that we are all people who were lost to sin. But in Christ, we have been saved by the loving grace of God. And now we've got good work to do to help others in his name and for his glory. We were all lost in sin, but in Christ, we have been saved by the loving grace of God. And now we've got good work to do to help others in his name and for his glory. 
That's the, that's the core. That's the essential truth that goes into who we are as followers of Jesus. And if we can hold tightly to that in this coming year and commit to sharing it with others, we'll all have a resolution that is truly worthy of pursuing and changing our lives for. To do this, we're going to take a look at the book of Ephesians, taking a look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. To give you a little bit of context, in chapter 1 of Ephesians, Paul declares the, the absolute sovereign rule of Christ over all creation. And in, verses, uh, in chapter 1, verses 3 through 23, are filled with some of the most beautiful exaltations of our Savior that you can find in the New Testament. It's this lovely, lofty language about who Jesus is and what he's done for us. But then in chapter 2, Paul's focus changes suddenly, and, and all of a sudden, dramatically, he shifts his focus from, from who Christ is and where he is now to us and to humanity, and he reminds us of our tragic, fallen reality, that we are all people lost to the power of sin and evil. Starting in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, we read, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and your sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. When I was in middle school and, and beginning to explore the freedoms that come with being a teenager who basically thinks he's an adult, my parents laid down two rules, two sovereign commandments that I was to follow with uncompromising obedience. The first was my curfew. It could be negotiated depending on what my plans were for the night, but I needed to be through the door of our home at the time that we had agreed upon, All right, or, or else, basically, was, was the underlying message there. Right, the second rule is for my cell phone. If my mother called me on that first-generation Nokia brick with the flip-down thing that goes over the keypad, I had better pick up. Or if I was in a place where I couldn't pick up, I had better excuse myself and, and get back to a place where I could call her in a reasonable amount of time. So those were, those were the two. That's be home on time and answer the phone when mom picks up. This, this was the law. So one night I had plans to watch a movie at my friend's house and, and my curfew got set at about 10 o'clock and I slipped my cell phone in my jacket pocket and walked down the street where my friend lived and looked forward to having just a great time with him that night and, and hanging out. And we got the movie started a little late and as the hours began to roll by, I, I realized that I, the movie wasn't going to end but by 10 and that I would be getting home late if I stayed for the entire thing. And rather than doing something reasonable or sensible, like calling my mom and asking for some extra time, who was a very gracious, is a gracious person and probably would have given it to me, I reasoned with all my teenage self-righteousness that I could muster that I was only a few minutes from home, that it didn't really matter, that I could make this decision on my own. So I ignored the time, decided not to call home, and lived my life to the fullest that a teenager could at that, at that stage. And then when it was time to leave, I pulled on my jacket and slipped out my cell phone and checked to, to check the time. And, and I saw that it was 10.30 at night. But that wasn't what jumped out to me at first. Because the time had been moved up to the top corner of that, of that bright lime green glowing Nokia screen and replaced by a warning that my mother had called not once, not twice, but four different times. The memory of my slow, doomed steps back home 
is what comes to my mind when I read something like, you were dead in your transgressions and your sins. <laughs> it's not a physical death, but it's a sense of hopelessness and inevitable punishment. A realization that rebellion has a cost and you cannot save yourself from the judgment to come. This, but on a far more consequential and terrible scale, is what the Apostle Paul is describing in these verses. This is the tragedy of human existence. That our sins and our rebellion and our wrongdoings, both premeditated and spur of the moment, all contribute to a spiritual death that that results in our alienation from God. The prophet Isaiah captured this condition perfectly in his remit from chapter 59, verse 2, when he said, Your iniquities have separated you from God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear you. If you're going to understand Christianity and if you're going to, if you're going to recognize what it means to truly follow Christ then you have to, and, and to recognize God as Christ as your Savior, then you have to begin from this place of realizing and admitting your rebellion and your need for salvation. It's, unco- it's an uncomfortable topic to dwell on, this, these transgressions and our sins, but we can't appreciate all that God has done for us if we don't first, first come to terms with the disaster of life that we've created for ourselves. Something is terribly wrong between us and God. And we need to be able to see that so we can also see all of the ways that he has worked so hard to make it right again. So in these few verses, Paul briefly outlines three areas in which the, the struggle with sin and evil takes place. First, he says that we were dead in our transgressions and our sins when we followed the ways of this world in verse two. Now, Scripture is full of warnings of what that worldliness can lead us to believe about getting ahead and being successful. And, and that, the, that desire, this worldliness that, that, that gets preached to us is often incompatible with the will and the values and the commands of God. The world beckons us to indulge the influences of greed and corruption and oppression, of immorality, materialism, and the neglect of our neighbors in need. Another author in the New Testament echoed Paul's warnings of worldliness in 1 John chapter 2, where it says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Worldliness is in conflict with a godly, righteous life because it encourages us to believe that we can make it on our own, that we can be powerful, that we should be in control, that God works for us, and that we can act without consequence or concern. We slip into following the ways of the world when we fool ourselves into thinking that we can get away with it, with sin, with lies, with evil, because no one is watching, or even if they are watching, they're not strong enough to do anything about it. But friends, God knows our hearts. He knows who we really are and what we've really done and knows whether or not we really love him or if our love has fallen short and settled for something small and selfish that will one day turn to dust. A second struggle we face is against the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. In other words, this is describing our struggle against the enemy, against Satan. 
against the devil and demonic forces of evil that stand with him and, and, and a very re- are very real and very much a threat to our spiritual well-being and our eternity. Now, I don't know what everyone here necessarily believes about the devil or, or, or what their experience has been um, w- with this truth, but, and I don't have very much time to dive into it, but suffice it to say that the Bible does indeed regard Satan as a very real and very dangerous threat to humanity. The devil delights in corrupting our connection with God, and his work flourishes in those who embrace disobedience any time that we embrace acts against the will of God. And before we excuse ourselves from the struggle with evil, notice that in verse 3, Paul clearly declares that these sinful afflictions are affecting all of us. He was speaking for himself and the people he was writing to and the people who read this today. We have all suffered from embracing the ways of the world, from the influence of evil in conjunction with our disobedience, and as it says in verse 3, from gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Selfishness, self-centeredness, unchecked cravings, addictions, and insatiable desires to consume. We sin in our flesh when we objectify something or someone good so that we can use it to satisfy our own burning desire for selfish gain. We become gluttonous, lustful, and give ourselves over to feelings like anger and hatred and greed. When you lay it all out like this, it becomes frightfully easy to see just how dire our situation really is. We are attacked from without by the world, from beyond and above by evil, and even from within ourselves by our own corruption. Sin has caused us to to possess a deeply broken and flawed nature, which Paul bluntly describes as deserving of wrath. We all have done things that place us in the path of God's righteous judgment. And this is perhaps where the truth we find in Scripture clashes most with what the world wants us to believe about ourselves. See, because you and I are not just fine on our own. We do not get to define what is right or good about ourselves. The creation does not dictate to the Creator the way things are going to work. Yes, all people are made in the image of God, and because of that truth, people inherently have a reason to love and be loved. But the terrible tension unapologetically found in Scripture is this. Despite our glorious origins and special, as special creations of God, we are not perfect. We are not flawless. And we are not free to be whatever we want to be. We are slaves in bondage to our sin. We are dead in our transgressions that we choose to continue committing over and over and over again. And no matter what we do, no matter how hard we may try, work, try to work to be good, we are still dead, disobedient, and doomed. This is what it means, or for some what it meant, to be people who are lost to sin. But, in verse 4, Like a deep gasp of fresh air or light bursting forth in the darkness, God changes everything. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. 
For it is by grace that you have been saved, through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Yes, we all need to remember and never forget that we are totally lost and dead in our sin. But God did not leave us alone to suffer our dark, self-made fate. He proved himself to be who he has always been as he proclaimed long ago in Exodus 34 to Moses when he said, I am the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving the wickedness of rebellion and sin. In Christ, we have been saved by the loving grace of God. In Christ, we have been saved by the loving grace of God. Every day, we're given dozens of opportunities and options with which we try to to define ourselves or show ourselves to the world. Some are simple. The clothes we wear, the food we eat, whether we choose to drink coffee or tea in the morning. Some are more complicated, like how we go about our work or the people we meet or the relationships we try to create. But this is what I want you to consider today and think about as we move forward into the new year. What would it mean if every day you defined yourself first and foremost as someone who has been saved by the loving grace of God? What would it mean if you defined yourself as someone who has been saved by the loving grace of God? What might change about your life if your motivations and your decisions and your actions all began with the recognition and appreciation that your entire life is a gift from your Holy Father? It is by grace a free and undeserved gift to us from God that we have been saved, more than just forgiven, but also delivered from death and slavery and wrath. And that salvation is through faith, our humble trust and heart cry that we need God. My wife and I have gone to see a couple movies in the past couple weeks, uh, Star Wars, Jumanji, Knives Out, all really great, Oscar winners, totally. And uh, during the previews, there's always this ad for Coca-Cola. If some of you have been to the movies recently, you may have seen it. And this voice fills the audio, reminding you not to forget your favorite drink. And it's followed by this sensory awakening sound of soda being poured into a glass and cold ice cracking as the liquid moves all the way up the cup and all the way to the top where you can hear the carbonation kind of sizzling and popping, beckoning you to jump out of your seat and run to the concession stand before the movie begins to to get a soda. And all of a sudden, your mouth, it seems a little drier, and you can't help but think, man, like, I I really just got to go get a drink. It's even happening to me now. I'm such a sucker for this kind of stuff. (laughs) And and in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, and especially verses 4 through 9, it should cause a similar reaction, a similar thirst for grace deep within your heart and soul. As you ready yourself for 2020, you should long for your life and the year ahead to be filled to the top with love and grace and mercy and kindness that this passage promises us us to us in Christ. You can't help but run after those things that the Lord wants to give. And before we move on to the last verse this morning, I want to make sure that no one misses the emphasis in this passage of all of this truly being a gift. Salvation is unmerited, unearned, and offered to you freely by the loving God of creation. Again, look at how Paul says all of this comes about. How do all these changes occur in our life? Who's taking all the action? Whose motivation gets all this done? It's not our own. We cannot boast about saving ourselves. 
All the initiative and all the work of salvation is carried out by God himself through Christ alone. It is because of his great love for us that we are saved. It is because of his rich mercy that we are not made to suffer the judgment we deserve. It is because of his amazing grace that we can be saved by faith in him. And it is because of his kindness and his desire for that kindness to be on display throughout all creation and all the ages to come that Jesus was born into this world, died as a sacrifice for our sins, and was raised to life again. We do not redeem ourselves. Slavish devotion to dogma and doctrine do not somehow add up to obligatory salvation. It is, not by the, it is by grace that all in Christ have been saved through faith so that no one may boast. It's a gift. Your life is a gift. So celebrate and be thankful and resolve to use that gift to its fullest, glorifying God in the coming year. We may have been people who were lost in our sin, but in Christ we are now people who are saved by the loving grace of God. And because of that amazing gift, this fundamentally life-changing truth, we've all got glorious, wonderful work to do. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Instead of being dead and worthy of wrath, We're alive, totally recreated in Christ and sent out into the world to do God's work. Lately, I've been thinking a lot about my role as a follower of Jesus in this world and about what what as Christians we're called to do as people who represent God to those who are still lost, who are still searching, who are still trying to find out who Jesus really is. And friends, I am so weary of my faith and my religion and Jesus being associated with terrible things. I am tired of the misrepresentation I see in the world and see how hard the enemy is working to create. And I am frustrated by our own actions and our own words that reinforce this false image of what it means to be saved by grace, what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to worship the one true God. We are God's handiwork. We have been created and reborn in Christ to do good in this world. In the coming year, one of my greatest desires is to live my life in obedience to the marching orders that Jesus left his disciples just before he faced the cross, when in John 13, he said, a new command I give to you, love one another. As I have loved you, so must you love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. We have not been handcrafted by God to perpetuate violence or anger, or hate, or cruelty. We are people who ought to be uncompromisingly known for our love. This is our one true resolution, that we will honor our new creation purpose to leave no doubt in the minds and hearts of all that we meet that we see them with the eyes of God, that we love them, that Christ loves them and died for them just as he died for us. We are God's handiwork. We are the clay, and God is the potter, and we are the work of his hands. Sent out into the world to love others and to make our creator, our artist, famous and glorified. We've got work to do, good work to do, to help others in God's name and for his glory.
As you prepare for the new year, how will you go about getting ready to be the kind of person God's created you to be? A first step might, might be to be honest with yourself and before the Lord about who you struggle to love and ask him not only to forgive you, but to help you see the people that, that, that you struggle to love, see them the way that he sees them. Reach out to them in the way that he reaches out to them. Have the kind of love that he has for your neighbors and the people that are around you. Another step you could take is to ask God to reveal to you what good works he's prepared in advance for you to do. He's already got it ready for you. All he wants you to do is to step into it. Should you, should you reach out to your neighbor? Share the gospel with your children. Explore a ministry God has in store for you by trying new ways to serve others or cut back on some of the things that you do so you can focus on loving a few very well instead of spreading yourself too thin. Recommit to your work in a way that honors the Lord. I cannot tell you what God has in store for you to do, but I can promise you that he has made and is making you the right person to get it done. You are his handiwork. Go and see what he has created you to do. And remember, you don't love others in order to earn something. You love others because God first loved you. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave, himself to, who, gave for, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify himself, a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. May we all be known for our love of God and our love of others and our eagerness to do what is good in the coming year. Would you pray with me? Father God, it is always humbling and, and, and raw and vulnerable and, and, and shaking to come and, and see the gospel and see how far you went to what depths you went to rescue us from our sin, that you came to us while we were enemies and that you faced us and that you worked hard to save us, that you sent your son, what we celebrate in Christmas, the incarnation, not only to live and not only to instruct, but also to die for us as a sacrifice that we could fully understand and, and, and embrace what it means to have a God who loves us. Lord, please put in our hearts for, this, for these next coming days, these next coming weeks, and this next coming year to share that love that you've given us with others, to be unapologetically and unquestioningly, unquestioningly uncompromisingly known as people who love the Lord and therefore love others as well. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.